Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. Hi, you're with Give the People What They Want. It's our 122nd episode. Zoe and Prashant from People's Dispatch. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Well, we, we've known for a long time that the U.S. government spies on, well, just about everybody, including its allies. When Edward Snowden made his release of National Security Agency um, documents in 2013, he revealed that the U.S. government was spying on, well, who? Well, Angela Merkel of Germany. Can't think of a closer ally. The Brazilian government also shades of um, evidence that the U.S. was spying on the United Nations. Earlier, when Chelsea Manning brought the information to WikiLeaks in um, in, in a, almost a, a decade uh, plus now, uh, Chelsea Manning showed that the U.S. government was sniffing around at its allies. Well, now it turns out a 21-year-old Massachusetts National Guardsman by the name of Jack Tijera, um, who's based at Otis Air Base in Cape Cod, a 21-year-old, most unlikely person, most likely not really politically motivated in, in any way because Mr. Tijera, age 21, was in a Discord server group with 20 of his friends called Thug Shaker Central. I'm told that this is a white supremacist reference to the kind of racist memes that circulate around social media, including in these closed Discord groups. Apparently, Mr. Tijera put a whole bunch of material that came his way. 21 years old. Tells you a lot about how the United States um, manages its secret, highly confidential materials. Mr. Tijera put this up on that Discord server group, largely to brag to his friends. The Discord server group, of course, leaked and the materials then went to a whole bunch of other Discord server groups, um, and then to 4chan, to, you know, uh, various other outlets. And then finally was, you know, became a big story when it was revealed. A couple of things uh, that were revealed by the material. Now, it's interesting material. Initially, of course, the, there was a statement saying that this was leaked by the Russians, that the Russians had hacked the system. Reuters did a story, in fact, saying conclusively that this is a Russian hack and so on. Turns out, I don't think it's a Russian hack as far as what we know, although Mr. Tijera is only now being investigated um, more deeply to see what his ties and links are. But I think this is a young man who got uh, quite interesting materials on in front of him on his computer, decided to download them, print some of them out, take pictures of them, and then upload it. Uh, to his Discord server group to brag to his friends. It looks like that's the credible story, although we'll never know, um, you know, what exactly happened. Uh, nonetheless, here's what's in the material. And, and this is interesting. Hundreds of pages of material. What's in the material? Number one, there are assessments by the U.S. military, by the Pentagon, of the state of the war in Ukraine. Um, you know, there's an assessment that this is now going to be a grinding war, a war of attrition, that victory seems to be impossible for either side, which, in fact, um, if you read those documents which have been shared by some news outlets, you read those documents, it looks like a good call 
for a peace agreement, given that the U.S. government itself, which has been really driving hard on this war, uh, seems to have suggested from as early as February, a year into the war, that nobody seems to be winning. That's actually a pretty stunning finding. Secondly, there is a suggestion in the documents that special forces from Britain, uh, you know, dozens of them are operating inside Ukraine. This is a revelation. Uh, that U.S. and perhaps uh, U.K. and perhaps U.S. special forces are fighting inside Ukraine on behalf of the Ukrainian military. Um, I'm surprised there's not more hoopla about this in the United Kingdom, but I suppose they're still a little battered by the fact that Joe Biden is in Ireland and has decided not to come for the king's coronation. Maybe that's uh, been focusing their attention. There's also other important stories in Britain. For instance, they've got their uh, strikes that are going to start up again. So, well, we can forgive them for not paying attention to this, an illegal uh, act if, if there were any. But the third thing is actually quite stunning. Again, more evidence of U.S. spying on its allies. In this case, South Korea. This has created a, a crisis in South Korea because uh, there's a number of things that the U.S. was apparently looking at. One of them, why the South Koreans were not willing to provide ammunition to the Ukrainian military that they've been holding, which they bought from the U.S. Um, those discussions are quite interesting. The government in South Korea struggling again, like many governments in the global south, struggling between pressure from the United States to um, come on side over this war and also its other interests and relations, its own national interests, its links to, say, China and Russia itself, you know, not willing, not wanting to exacerbate the conflict with the northern half of the peninsula. Recently, there was a missile launch from the DPRK, from the North Korea, which used for the first time solid state fuel. Uh, a big advance by the North Koreans to have launched the so solid fuel um, missile. So South Korea struggling with this contradiction between its own national interests and pressure from the U.S. It's an emerging and rolling story about these spy leaks. But of course, it reminds us, Prashant, of that other person who's sitting in prison and who didn't spy on the U.S., didn't leak information, but published documents that had been leaked to him by Chelsea Manning. That's Julian Assange. What's happening with Julian, um, Prashant? Yeah, April is actually a very significant month because it marks two anniversaries. One, I mean, on April 5th is the anniversary of when the collateral murder video was also released, which was in some senses the beginning of all this. And of course, uh, April 11th also marking the anniversary in 2019 or that date when Julian Assange was very brutally uh, and very undignified way removed from the Ecuadorian embassy. Of course, we uh, remember the fact that this happened after the government of Lenin Moreno, which was uh, technically committed to progressive policies when he took power, uh, you know, did this massive about turn and then became a full-fledged ally of the US. But I think the intervening years have really shown that all this talk about democracy, all this talk about freedom of expression is a complete sham when push comes to shove. And, uh, you know, in Assange's case, one of the most important things which we, I think we keep highlighting is the fact that there is no charge uh, against him, but he's been in jail. He is in Belmarsh prison right now. He's been in jail since 2019, but there is no real charge against him. He is accused of being some kind of a flight risk despite the fact that there is really no evidence to anything of that sort. And that is the reason why he's kept in jail, so that they can decide on whether he should be shipped to the United States, where, uh, and again, important to remember, if he's 
said there's going to be another long trial process. Uh, the charges are quite severe. You're looking at, you know, um, probably most of his life uh, spent in jail and in extremely difficult circumstances, uh, you know, during the trial, during the process to deliberate on the extradition, the the facility, the prisons where he may be kept were discussed. And one of the key points made by his lawyers was that these are actually extremely, you know, oppressive uh, prison institutions. There's been a lot of concern about his mental health, uh, the possibility of suicide, for instance. But despite all this, the United States, the United Kingdom, two countries which, you know, keep doing this global democracy campaign, organizing summits across the world, going to the global south, lecturing countries on democracy, uh, talking about uh, journalists, for instance, in Russia. Uh, there's no shortage of their concern over uh, journalists in Russia. But when it comes to Assange, uh, there has been absolutely uh, no movement. And the Joe Biden administration, for a long time, people were like, oh, this is Donald Trump who's responsible for this. Uh, but Joe Biden comes to office and has does not change the policy at all. Uh, we've discussed them I in various aspects, but I think the key thing, the key in, in, important thing is to be sort of, the key thing to remember is that he's definitely a political prisoner. There's no other way of looking at it. The International People's Assembly, for instance, has launched a, is part of and has launched a very significant campaign to highlight some of these aspects. There's a lot of work going on to bring together elected representatives from various parts of the world to push for Assange's release. We know that, uh, what do you call uh, Rishita Taleb and other Congress Women in the Congress, men and women in the U.S. have signed a letter to the U.S. Attorney General. A small step in Australia after years and years of not doing anything, there has been some kind of a move towards, you know, by uh, members of Parliament to sort of write to the U.S. Attorney General as well. So all these are, of course, uh, positive signs. The fact that even media organizations who had once benefited from Assange's work then suddenly turned against him when uh, the state, when the United States establishment pushed them to are even now, some of them are beginning to say that, hey, this is wrong. You can't put a publisher and a journalist in jail like this under espionage. So there have been, of course, signs of global awareness, of global campaign. But I think uh, a key part to remember is that the fundamental prosecution, the, the more most important part of the prosecution has not been stopped and they have, been, uh, they have not been willing to listen to the calls from across the world. It's an incredible story. It's an ongoing story. We're going to look at this, um, you know, constantly and consistently. One of the main story items that we've been following at People's Dispatch, you've been looking at it. Uh, let's go to where some of this story starts, which is Ecuador, where, you know, it's it, it, the Ecuador's embassy that Julian Assange took refuge. Um, Zoe, Ecuador has been in a long term political crisis. What's what's going on there? Well, that's exactly right. Uh, the Ecuador of Rafael Correa that actually granted Julian Assange asylum, uh, you know, way back when is not the Ecuador of today. Uh, as you said, it's been going through a deep political crisis, of course, marked with this about turn of Lenin Moreno in 2017. And really since then, this crisis has continued to, to worsen. Um, in 2021, uh, after Lenin Moreno uh, left office, uh, Guillermo Lasso was elected. It was a an upset for the left at the time. Uh, Andres Arauz was running to be the next president of the country, to be kind of the real successor to the citizens' revolution. Um, he had worked in the government of Rafael Correa, um, and it was attempting to be a return to these social policies, the same kind of policies that gave um, Assange asylum and 
rejected having U.S. military bases in Ecuador. However, he was defeated. Guillermo Lasso won these elections, uh, conservative, uh, former banker. And I don't think that at the time the people of Ecuador could have prepared themselves for what the government of Guillermo Lasso would mean for them. Um, during his presidency, there has been a significant uptick in, for example, uh, gang violence in the prisons. There have been several extremely brutal uh, prison massacres. Uh, these have been fights between um, rival drug trafficking groups and you know, dozens of people, dozens of people have been killed in these. And there's been human rights organizations have alleged severe mismanagement by prison authorities with the president not taking enough action. So there's been this human rights and humanitarian catastrophe in Ecuador's prisons. There's been an increase um, in general crime and in drug trafficking that's been happening throughout the country. Um, but also there's been uh, proliferating corruption scandals. And Guillermo Lasso himself has found himself smack dab in the middle. Um, not only is he mentioned in the Pandora Papers, but also uh, over the last several months, there was a pretty large scale uh, denunciation made by an alternative media outlet that had been investigating um, a corruption scheme involving the Albanian mafia um, and involving businessmen and uh, people who were very, very close to Guillermo Lasso, uh, accusing them of having essentially siphoned money out of state projects um, for their own benefit and having um, quite explicit links to this Albanian mafia that they uh, believe is is quite powerful in the country. So these, this allegation that came out a couple months back, La Posta is the alternative media outlet that, that broke this story, has since been investigated uh, in parliamentary spaces and in institutional spaces by the attorney general. And left-wing parliamentarians in Ecuador have opened an impeachment process against Guillermo Lasso, alleging that um, due to his involvement in this corruption scandal, he must be impeached, taken out of office for all of this mismanagement. Um, the first motion which said, will this be tabled in, uh, has been passed, and now essentially the legislative uh, body has to make um, the next decision, and then it will be debated. So currently in Ecuador, we're looking at a situation of uh, a deteriorating humanitarian situation, um, even more... Uh, political crisis, corruption, um, and the possibility of actually the president being taken out of office. Um, this is happening, of course, at the same time, the recent midterm elections, the left is actually making a significant comeback. And so I think in this, in this context, um, the left has continued to grow. They've continued to show that, uh, while Rafael Correa and many of the people who were in his government are accused of corruption, there's actually hard evidence, um, showing that it is actually the right wing who's committing this corruption and actually quite serious, serious allegations. So uh, it's definitely something to look out for. There was a there was an article in L.A. Times this week about how Ecuador is now one of the U.S.'s only solid allies. But this is happening at a time where, of course, democracy is severely eroding. So it's an interesting situation. The U.S. is left without solid allies. You know, they, of course, have some agreements uh, with countries across the region. But Ideologically, it seems like Ecuador is their last chance, even if they have it's a, a completely deteriorating situation. Well, it's a very good uh, review of what's been happening in Ecuador, an important country in the Andes, of course, neighbor to Peru, another country in the midst of an ongoing political crisis. You're listening to give the people what they want. We come to you from People's Dispatch, where you get all this news from 
Peru, from Ecuador, from other parts of the world. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Happy to be with you. Uh, happy to bring you these stories. I'm going to come back to Zoe again because, Zoe, um, you know, there's a lot of Brazil stuff in the news these days. One of the important features of, of that news reporting is that uh, President Lula has completed a hundred years of a hundred days, I say, hundred days of governance. Uh, what what has happened in Brazil? Hundred days of governance, Lula in the presidency, but the right wing still in the grip of the parliament. Well, it's interesting talking about anniversaries. It's also been five years since Lula was actually arrested and put in prison in Curitiba, and. It's it's crazy to actually think about the fact that the person who's governing Brazil right now had spent over 580 days in prison fighting for his innocence, which was finally proven in court um, by the Supreme Court. And now he has won back the complete support of the people and is is leading Brazil, trying to overcome the many deep, deep problems that have that are plaguing it because of this right wing rule. And it has been 100 days, over 100 days at this point, uh, since he took office on January 1st. As we know, just a week after he took office on January 8th, the invasion of Brasilia happened, extreme chaos, um, destruction of public property, destruction of historical patrimony of Brazil, um, such loss, and of course, a situation attempting to create um, political destabilization uh, Lula very expertly managed this crisis and was able to actually build even greater political unity among, around his presidency. A lot of people who maybe would consider themselves centrist and skeptical of Lula, um, of course, in this face of the attack against democracy, saw themselves kind of coming together to defend the Brazilian state against this this deep undermining. Um, and as he said during his campaign, that his biggest concern in Brazil, in the first period of him taking office, is really addressing, as I said, these huge issues that Brazil faces, hunger, unemployment, um, deep poverty, inequality, and, and of course, the environmental crisis facing the country. And, and he has, uh, in fact, uh, taken serious and concrete measures to address these. Um, there have been um, important measures passed with regards to uh, extending the economic aid that's given to low-income people in the country under his government. This was called Bolsa Familia and is a program that was actually praised by the United Nations. Um, this program has been reinstituted. It had been severely weakened under Bolsonaro. It had been renamed. It is back as Bolsa Familia expansion in terms of the amount of money that uh, is being given to people and of course the the pool of people that are able to receive it um, there have been very important uh, coordinations being made with for example indigenous organizations uh, under bolsonaro that one of the largest threats uh, really was um, the illegal mining expansion and logging into indigenous territory there was almost uh, bolsonaro said that the indigenous people have too much land and there's no reason that it shouldn't be used for the economic development of the country uh, Lula in his campaign and once he was sworn in swore that there would be zero deforestation, zero continued logging. He has made good on this promise. There has been significant efforts to fortify the environmental regulations that were torn down under Bolsonaro, under uh, Michel Temer. This is a significant development and one of the primary concerns for indigenous communities that are not only facing um, the the kind of recolonization of their land, but also physical extermination 
there was a very, very serious case of malnutrition and severe public health crisis in the Yanomuni uh, indigenous community. Lula himself, when learning of this crisis, he flew there um, and committed to sending emergency aid. So I think all of these measures are really a vote of good faith uh, in what he has been doing. Of course, you're about to talk about one of the very, very exciting things, which has global implications, um, which is, of course, his international agenda uh, during Bolsonaro's presidency. I don't know the exact number, but I want to say it was a couple dozen countries maybe that he visited while president and uh, broke a lot of international agreements, withdrew Brazil from a lot of important international spaces. This is a serious commitment of Lula to put Brazil back on the world stage. You're quite right, uh, Zoe. You know, Lula arrived in China late because he had fallen ill, so he had to delay his visit, met with Xi Jinping. Uh, Xi Jinping made a statement saying that Brazil and China share extensive common interests. He reinforced the phrase comprehensive strategic partners. That's the level of their um, of their, 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 you know, of their, the ties between the two countries. Interestingly, not much public conversation about Ukraine and the war in Ukraine, much more conversation about trade and development issues. Um, the Brazilians and the Chinese signed a number of agreements, 15 in total, including, as you mentioned, the Amazon putting up a sixth satellite to monitor um, deforestation in the Amazon and other troubling developments in the world's largest lung, as it were. Um, it's also important to note that Brazil and China have signed an agreement regarding telecommunications, including 5G technology. Now, the reason I'm putting some emphasis on this is you'll remember that the Trump trade war against China, which has been carried forward by President Biden, was really about trying to get countries to no longer um, utilize Chinese 5G and telecommunications tools. The, the going after of Huawei, for instance, was very much along the lines of this, that Brazil has said, look, we want the best technology, which is also reasonably priced, and that technology is going to come to us from China is interesting. There's still some issues here about the fact that the Brazilians largely export raw materials to China and import finished goods. This was on the table. No public comment on it, but we were briefed in advance that this was going to be a point of discussion. Of course, this has got to some extent, something to do with what Mr. Bolsonaro had did to the Brazilian economy. I mean, he and previous to him, Mr. Temer oversaw the deindustrialization of sections of Brazil's economy, including, I think, the, the sale of Embanair, the company that made light aircraft. You know, these are the kinds of products that the, the Brazilians could have sold the Chinese. Uh, there's going to be a process for the reindustrialization of Brazil. I think that's very much on the table. I think the highlight of the trip was was the speech Mr. Lula gave at the inauguration of Dilma Rousseff to the presidency of the New Development Bank. It's an interesting speech. It's instructive. Um, at the People's Dispatch website, you can go and read two pieces. One, a translation from Brazil de Fato. The other, a very good piece by Marco Fernandez, which was written for Globetrotter, published at People's Dispatch. Two really good pieces which give you a sense of of what's on the table. Now, at his speech in um, at the New Development Bank, Mr. Lula emphasized the question of currency. He talked a, a great deal about the need to um, for countries to trade in their own currencies. And he, you know, basically 
made the point what's wrong with our currencies why do we have to uh, you know uh, trade through the dollar well of course that's exactly the point that there was a, developed a global trust in the dollar and the dollar became the currency of um, of trust you know in between countries very difficult to trade in two currencies you know for instance to trade in the rupee and the rial the currency of brazil it's very hard because if there is a imbalance in the trade what does um, brazil do with all these accumulated rupees if it's not going to buy more things from india you know who is going to take the rupee those are pending and pressing issues in the in the world of currency i was interested to see however that he put this on the table flatly is something that brazil has also started as it has reentered trade negotiations with countries in south america including with argentina there was not much discussion at the new development bank however on things like creating regional commodity chains um, building up more investment for infrastructure in parts of the global south that really needed uh, that was not so much on the table but i'm sure that that is going to be on the agenda of dilma rousseff you know i interviewed her last year uh, we talked broadly about development these are things that matter to her eradicating poverty improving infrastructure and ensuring that um, that industrialization is put on the agenda for countries that are basically exporting raw materials but keep an eye on all this stuff now keeping an eye on points of tension prashant people's dispatch is one of the few places where you can find out what's happening in sudan recently troubling news that conflict between the military and the paramilitary is continuing what's what's the latest update from sudan right uh, we're going to have a written update soon our colleague pavan's story is coming up in a few hours but to uh, summarize very quickly very very tense times in sudan because like you said uh, the military the army which is basically in control which staged a coup in october 2021 removed the civilian forces is in conflict with what is called the rapid support forces now uh, the rsf is not just any paramilitary organization it has a very long and brutal history we have covered that often on people's dispatch you know its earliest uh, sections were involved in the genocide in darfur for instance uh, it has a you know huge involvement in those provinces even still there is a lot of connection between it and commercial activities including various kinds of smuggling for instance the the violence that is going on in this region is attributed to the struggle for resources in which the rsf plays an important part now it's important to remember that uh, the army and the rsf together were part of the coup in october 2021 which overthrew uh, you know the very fledgling uh, civilian government and uh, ever since uh, after a while talks continued to sort of uh, in talks continued to restore some form of civilian government largely due to international pressure now again very important to remember that these talks were opposed by the left and radical sections because they saw them as very limited and limiting in some senses that they would just lead to the restoration of the old system with some civilian faces instead of military faces but nonetheless those discussions have continued and uh, there was an announcement in december that there would be a formal agreement that would be signed between the civilian sections uh, you know the centrist parties and the military uh, junta now what has happened in the meanwhile is that divisions between the military and the rsf have escalated considerably now we are seeing a situation where both sections especially the rsf are deploying uh, in khartoum in other places without the permission and clearance of uh, the military and this is what is really alarming a lot of people now there have been statements from all sides saying that you know we want to continue discussions we want to continue negotiations but 
the divide between uh, the army led by Abdul Fateh al-Burhan and uh, the RSF led by the general called Hemeti, Mohammed Hamdan Tagalo, are very much uh, evident right now. Doesn't help that uh, Burhan is seen as someone close to Egypt, for instance, whereas the RSF is supported very strongly by the UAE and even Saudi Arabia. So also regional uh, dynamics kind of playing a part in here. So what everyone is worried about is the possibility of, of a firefight, a shootout taking place, which could, you know, uh, really derail things as it stands, even the very fragile moves towards some kind of a settlement. Uh, it's interesting that there are divisions even in the civilian sections. Uh, we'll be writing, writing about that as well. But nonetheless, there is some amount of openness and communication. But everyone is right now very concerned about the possibility of this breaking out. The left is... Uh, the Sudanese Communist Party, the various resistance committees have always been saying that there should be no collaboration with the military junta, uh, you know, no compromise with the military junta. They've been calling for a much more larger political process, uh, a different kind of electoral system, maybe a political strike even. So that's a very different agenda that they're pushing from the ground against this, uh, you know, uh, very limited process. But even this very limited process kind of seems in threat because of the possibility that a full-fledged uh, firefight might break out. So very difficult, uh, like we often say, very difficult times for people in Sudan. I think a lot of baited breath. There have been some positive statements regarding settling issues. So I think everyone is hoping that there is, you know, uh, the agreement has not yet been signed. It was supposed to be signed last week or something. But at least people are hoping that a full-fledged conflict does not break out. Well, certainly nobody wants to see that Sudan has been through enough uh, you've been listening to Give the People What They Want, brought to you by People's Dispatch, where you're going to read a story from Pavan Kulkarni about the crisis in Sudan. There's so many other things to read there, including stories about Brazil, uh, stories about um, Palestine and so on. Make sure to go and, and have a look. Uh, we come to you every week. We want to get your selfies. We want to get, uh, you know, the feeling that you're watching the show. Uh, I want to end today by just wishing Happy New Year to our friends and viewers in Nepal and in Tamil Nadu. Uh, New Year's Eve starts at different times of the year for different people, friends. So Happy New Year to those in uh, in Nepal and Tamil Nadu. Uh, give the people what they want every Friday. See you next week.